Welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Once again, this is Dan with you at the studios of DTM Enterprises. Uh, i got a special guest in here today. Darren's going to tell his story. Uh, you've heard some of the intro music, and in, in when I've introduced that of the later podcast, when I've said that uh, Darren Frank is who's who you're listening to, this is the gentleman you're listening to. How's it going, Darren? It's going pretty good. We'll bump the script a little bit. I do want to uh, get everybody tuned in to spiritualunderground.org. You can see show notes there. There's a contact me page if you want to be on the podcast or if you have any questions or if you need somebody to talk to and reach out if you maybe have some... Uh, uh, if you're in one of these binds like we find ourselves in and you need somebody to reach out to, I'm uh, perfectly willing to do that too. So uh, hit the email on that, spiritualunderground.org. Uh, also out is uh, Christopher Cohn's book, 12-Step Spiritual Recovery. We're calling it TSSR, 12-Step Spiritual Recovery. You can get that book on uh, on Amazon. You can go to 12stepspiritualrecovery.com and read up on it and uh, see what the movement is about. We've had our second meeting last night in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it was a really good meeting. It's rolling along, seems to be uh, taking, taking its own head of steam. We're really excited about that happening. So I think that's all the commercials. Like I said, you will hear Darren. We're going to have a song. We don't know what we're going to do. He's here with his guitar today. So like Jesse the other day, uh, played his own music. We probably will do a little of that today too. And uh, we'll see what ends up being on the intro. But I can promise you it will be music by Darren. Um, so we'll start off the same way we always do. Uh, just, oh, by the way, Shane's in here too. You've heard his story. He's uh, just hanging out, throwing some energy out and uh, kind of like having a little get together almost a miniature meeting with a few of us here together while uh sharing each other's energy juice bombing one another a so, triangle of juice there you go yeah no doubt so might as well holler holler hey shane hey shane yep there you go <laughs> cool so we'll start with the sobriety date april 23rd 2010 cool 2010 obviously the zero years makes it easy to keep track of how yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the math gets easy yep so um you know we don't really have a format here uh some people talk about where it began some people talk i do would like to i think it's important that we do go back because as we talked about last night you know some of this early training and things i want to make sure that we touch on those kind of things but uh wherever you want to start shane actually started on the day he hit bottom and circled around circled right. back around to earlier time and later in as we went along I generally start from the beginning. Um, what I've come to learn is that it doesn't matter what or how much I put in me. It's why that I put it in me to begin with. That's the problem, uh, especially with alcohol and drugs, because once I put those in me, I just can't seem to stop doing that on my own. But like it says in one of the books I read that, we can say the big book, right? I yes, you can it. say anything. <laughs> in the big book, it says, you know, if we didn't have to put that in us to begin with, it wouldn't be a problem. So that's not a real problem. Um, some of the earliest memories, I really don't remember anything pre-six years old hmm. except for fear-based memories. The very first memory that I have is standing in the uh, hallway and looking into the kitchen at my mother and dad by the sink fighting. <laughs> now, they never punched each other, but they did get physical uh, grabbing and stuff like that. My mom more so than my dad. Hmm. My mom was a badass. I mean, I felt sorry for my dad sometimes. Um, but I remember that. And that's really the only, and the only other one is, uh, we never really went to church. My dad was a Catholic. My mother wasn't. 
Uh, she was more spiritual based. Um, luckily, she was my biggest spiritual teacher as a child, so I was pretty s set um, when it comes to my current belief system. You know, I was just taught God is love. And I was also taught that a church is God's house. So when we were invited by some friends of ours, relatives, cousins, I believe, um, to this church, I still remember it. It's a little white shotgun church with a white gravel parking lot, pews on the right and the left, and then an aisle up the center. How can a four-year-old remember that? Well, this is how. My brothers and sisters went to the uh, Sunday school. And I was young, and I was a mama's boy, so I stayed in the big people's church in her lap. And it wasn't very far along in the service when this lady in the front row to my right got up and started screaming like something had a hold of her. And I think I just watched The Jungle Book or something on, on TV, and I thought it was a wolf. And, you know, I started climbing up my mom's neck to get away from whatever had her. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I know today um, that she was just talking in tongues, and it was a Pentecostal type of church. Yeah. Uh, At four, I didn't know that. See, I only had two emotions back then, like every other child, and that's love and fear. And uh, that scared me. And it burned that image into my mom. Um, I remember climbing up her neck and her getting up with me in her arms and cussing out the church and walking outside. And I can still remember all of us standing in the gravel parking lot because it burned that in my head, uh, just like the, the memory of them fighting. So right from the beginning, my ideas that were formed about relationships had to do with arguing and fighting, and God had to do with sometimes I'm not safe. So that's what I learned. A couple years later, um, I was uh, molested several times by a guy down, a young, young guy. He was 14 or 15 down the street from me. He was my neighbor. And uh, he used to give me things to come down there and, and let him do things to me. Um, one time he tried to do something that I didn't like at all and I ran and I eventually told my mother about it. Um, but that guy lived down the street from me the rest of my life, almost mm. the rest of my life until I was in my 30s. and. Um, I had a window in my bedroom that would not latch shut. So I would stay awake until four or five in the morning just to make sure he didn't get in my room. I would wow. check under my bed <clears throat> before I went to bed. At like 16 years old, yeah, wow. checking my under my bed. That fear just dominated me. Uh, I didn't like people. I didn't like to go to school. I didn't want to be away from home. Um, so I was pretty stagnant uh, in my growth. Um, so at 15, my brother, who was a drug dealer. Um, older brother? Older brother. My oldest <clears throat> brother had uh, three older sisters and two older brothers. And my oldest brother was a drug dealer, and he threw great parties, and I always wanted to go. But, I mean, I was still young. <clears throat> so my dad went with us. But he, he was watching my sister to make sure none of the guys messed with my uh, middle sister. And he didn't see his 15-year-old son sneak over by my oldest sister and, and a guy who looked like Willie Nelson. I don't remember his name, but we always called him Willie because he looked just like Willie Nelson. Man, I thought I was so cool drinking bourbon and Coke, man. And uh, I don't know how much I drank, but uh, I know 
that that was the best I've ever felt in my life. And uh, I, I didn't stop drinking until they pulled me away. And so that was my introduction to it. And the cool thing was I didn't have any consequences at all because my mom bitched at my dad because he was supposed to be watching me. So right off the bat, alcohol, A, felt good, and, and B, I didn't have any consequences. So, but <clears throat> I what think those it did, first times are really important to talk about too, that, that, that knowing that, you know, the first bump into the substance and you know this, is, this works for me. Right. What it did do, though, was make me really, really sick. I mean, yeah. I was basically throwing up straight whiskey. And um, so for three years, I never took another drink. Oh, did you? Took yeah, that long? For three years, yeah. And, and even whiskey was even longer than that. But what I did find at 17 was marijuana. I started hanging out because I, I graduated early. I was 17 when I graduated. Me too. And uh, we, I would hang out with friends, and they, they introduced me to marijuana. But that really never did that much for me. I, I mean, I did it. You know, I was equal opportunity. Uh, User. <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah. But um, beer is what I liked at first. And uh, I was, I looked this way except for the gray uh, since I was like 16, 17. So I could always buy, Go get, buy it. Yeah. yeah, I could buy it for my friends. And Yeah, I joked around about that in my stuff too. About like I had friends that had beards when in eighth grade or yep. this kind of thing, you know, and it was just, that's all it took to get served back and, then. Yep, and I didn't need any money. They paid for it. They were younger. I hung up with a lot of younger guys. Um, and they always paid for it, you know, so. And we'd always get two cases, one for me and one for them. <laughs> and uh, that went on for a long time. Um, but uh, that fear, it seemed like I never wanted to go to school because I was afraid of being bullied. Mm -hmm. uh, I never really was because <clears throat> I was a pretty big guy, but I was very quiet too. So I, I didn't want to invite any of that on. So uh, I pretty much stayed to myself. I didn't have friends in school. And I was thinking last night, you know, uh, I already, we already would have celebrated like a 30-year reunion a couple of years ago, and I don't keep in touch with those people because I never made contact to begin with. You know, I yeah. was my own separate entity at Valley High School. So uh, pretty much I, I drank from the ages of probably 18 to about, 27 28 pretty heavily so much so you know the only way i ever got money because i didn't work that much back then um was i gave blood and there came a point where i couldn't give blood because my liver was starting to show signs of oh, really being bad at at like 21 wow <laughs> yeah real real quick so i became a weekend drinker and i did that for quite a few years and that's when i, I met my wife um current wife at a karaoke pizza place that served alcohol or else I wouldn't have been there. And the pizza was pretty good. Um, my friends, we always used to pick on each other. You know, I, I would have rather they didn't pick on me, but I enjoyed picking on them. Um, it was a way to laugh, you know, but uh, I, I was really <laughs> self-conscious all the time. Um, I would make up stories about women uh, I was a virgin until I was 31 years old because really? I was scared of everything. And uh, being molested for a long time, I was unsure of, you know, my sexuality. I knew I liked women, but I had this idea that what happened to me made me gay, whether I liked it or not. And that just, and that wasn't the case, but, you know, 
nobody ever set me down and told me any otherwise. I just formed my own conclusions about myself. That's why I'm so glad I found this program and realized that not only can I choose my con uh, conception of a higher power, I can define who I am today. Yeah, right. And uh, that's the freedom that I've been given today. That's the only reason I can tell you that I was molested or that I was a virgin. I would have never told my buddies right, I was yeah. a virgin. But so I met this woman and, and my friend introduced me to her. He worked with her. But he was a jokester. So I'm like, he goes and gets her number. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I am right. not, not buying into this joke, man. So for two weeks, I didn't call her. And then one day, or one night, he was gone. He was up watching a UFL football game, I think. And his wife was there, who I trusted. She was nice. And um, she said, why don't you ever call her? And I'm like, that's not a joke? You serious? So she called her over. And I talked to her. But I was drunk. And my wife still to this day doesn't says I wasn't drunk but I, I was pretty drunk I never would talk to her but so um I told her I'd call her and I never did uh -huh. like, only two weeks I ended up uh I can't remember she called I think she called me first finally. really and um I can't remember I think I did call her but man I was scared but uh I felt comfortable with her um because I was a mama's boy and you know I felt comfortable around women um just not ones that I was attracted to but I it went pretty fast uh with her and uh it was great it was probably the best time in my life she had a 10 year old son who I liked he was a good kid and then in the beginning of uh 2000 my mom died of a heart attack and I was actually at her house when I got that phone call you better get here and uh, Blake Shelton wrote a song a few years later called The Baby, and it was exactly that story. And I, I could never listen to that song without crying. Probably still couldn't. But we rushed to the hospital, and I did get to see her. She was not conscious at all. But uh, that's what it took to send me over the edge. Um, problem was, I lived at home, and I was a mama's boy, and I needed that woman in my life so... We moved in together very quickly. And um, it was probably the worst thing that ever happened for that boy because she didn't like alcoholics because her her husband, ex-husband was an alcoholic. So now she didn't care about pills. So quickly I had to figure out how not to drink and still not blow my brains out. So my doctor introduced me to these little blue pills that I would take and uh, that made the noise calm down. but. For two years, it was wake up, cuss God, take some pills, and then cuss God some more and wait for them to get home from school and work. And uh, I didn't know anything about being a father because my father never really was involved in my life. And if he was at all, he was kind of putting me down, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember one time I was about 10 and... Uh, I wanted to spend time with him. He worked a lot. We had a big family and he was always supporting us. And so he drove crappy cars. So on the weekends he'd work on them, right? So I wanted to be out there with him because he would let my brothers do it. They were older. And so my mom ended up bitching at him and making making him let me come out there. So 
I'm being a goofy little 10-year-old, and I knock a screwdriver down to the engine where he can't get to it. And he looked at me and he said, boy, you can't do anything right. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking in the house and uh, just with my head hanging down. And, and that was one of those memories um, that burned into my mind. But that, that book you were talking about earlier, 12-Step Spiritual Recovery, when, um, when I worked with that author of that book, Christopher, he taught me how to go back and look at these situations with adult eyes. So when I did, I was, it's like a meditation. I went back and I could picture this moment and I, I looked at my dad and sweat was beating down his face. I could see that. And uh, it's amazing what the mind remembers. And uh, I said, oh, then I looked at myself in shorts and I'm like, it was hot that day. And then I asked myself a question like I was taught by Christopher. And I said, Darren, what do you do when you're hot and sweaty? How, what's your mood like? And I'm a bear. I mean, I'm grumpy. And I'm like, well, do you ever say things when you're grumpy that you wouldn't say any other time? And that was, uh, yes, that's the truth. So why can't that be my dad's truth? And so what I realized that in that moment, he wasn't trying to define my life by making me not good enough, which is what happened. But I chose to do that. As a 10-year-old, using fear-based thinking, I was not good enough. And I lived that for until I got into the program um, of Alcoholics Anonymous. But then when I look back at it, I'm like, you know, maybe he just said something that he wouldn't have never said if he was in the right, you know, spirit, spiritually fit, like we say. Yeah. So I got a little more freedom in that. And... Um, then I looked at, I did the same thing, you know. I'll come back to that as I get into the steps. But um, after two years of uh, being my father to this boy and kind of being the disciplinarian and taught, that's all I knew what a father did. You know, you discipline the kids and you uh, talk shit about them. That's basically what I did. And he was a great kid. I just never could see it. And after about two years of doing this, I, I went and, to some um, out, outpatient classes uh, for some therapy for depression. And don't call me a drug addict or an alcoholic. Yeah. That's not why I went. Um, but it worked. Uh, they taught me some tools, and I used those tools and had pretty good life. I started to work again, selling computers. And um, then I hurt my back in like 2004, and he gave me these yellow pills. <laughs> now so I came off those blue pills colors because I found myself taking too many of those and liking them too much. What were the blue pills? A Xanax. And uh, I, I went from 0.25 milligrams to 2.0 milligrams in light speed. I mean, within months. And then I found myself taking too many. So I actually stopped taking them, which is very dangerous, but I was able to come off of them, um, which ingrained in my brain that I, I'm not a drug addict. I can come off. I quit I anytime to. I want to. Right. And I could then. Yeah, right. And then I got on these yellow pills, which is Percocets. And, uh, and my doctor, I called him Dr. Feelgood because I mean, he didn't mess around. He didn't start me on the, the weaker stuff. He gave me the good stuff. And, um, uh, I got to liking those a lot too. And, uh, I remember, um, uh, this was back when uh, Texas Hold'em started to be a, a big thing on yeah, television. Right, yeah. 
So uh, we were playing cards, my nephew. Watching people play poker on TV. Yeah. Well, I was actually pretty good at it, and we played down at my nephew's, and he got out some tequila, and I took a couple shots. And I didn't drink a lot then because she didn't like it, my my girlfriend. So I took three shots of tequila, and then all of a sudden it hit me, dude, you just took your pain pill. And then it really hit me like, yeah, but that feels so good. Yeah, right. Alcohol and opiates <laughs> yes. is a good thing in yes. my book. And so uh, I still didn't drink a whole lot, but I continued to take those pills. But I was pretty functional. I, I really was. Uh, I worked at night, so nobody really noticed. you know. So I took pills at work, and I still got my work done, but got a lot of naps in, too. But it was cool. you know. I was by myself. Maybe one other person, but they were all cool. They did the same thing I did. Um, so I did that, and uh, all this whole while, you know, I never got along with um, my wife's or my girlfriend's uh, fiance at the time. Her son, um, we just never got along. I know now it's because he reminded me of me. I mean, I mean he's just like me. And uh, I don't bother you, does it? No, not at all. So uh, he moved out with his girlfriend in January of 2009. And that was the best time of my life because, you know, I was I was wrecking cars and <laughs> taking drugs. Yeah. Um, had a beautiful red um, Pontiac uh, Grand Am, ran it into our Grand Prix and ran it into the median on 64 Highland Xanax. They didn't check me for nothing, man. They just took me to the hospital and. I didn't have to work, so it was a win-win. Yeah. I can get another car. And I did. And um, But he moved out. But he he doesn't do very well with money. Again, he's very much like me. And uh, he moved back. And I didn't want him to move back. So I went to my doctor and had him give me those little blue pills. So I started taking the yellow pills and the blue pills together. And I was in heaven until <laughs> one day in September I passed out at work. For a whole shift, I, I clocked in and woke up 15 minutes after I was supposed to clock out. Luckily, I was the only one overtime. there that day. Yeah, overtime. <laughs> Nobody called, so no consequences. Well, the next day I went in when everybody was there, and I did the same thing, and, and I got fired. And, and I was appalled that they would fire me. Yeah, the nerve. But I remember sitting in my car thinking, yeah, but the good news is, dude, you can take drugs like you want to now. And I did that. Um, until December of uh, 2009, right around Christmas, right before Christmas, a couple weeks. And uh, my wife, she wasn't my wife yet, but I'll, I'll refer to her as my wife and my son. They, they moved, or they didn't move, they would spend the weekends away from me at her parents. And so one weekend they were gone, and uh, I had ran out of uh, my pain medication and all I had was Xanax, and I had a half a bottle of two milligrams, and I took the whole bottle. I, I didn't want to live anymore. I, I, I wanted to live, but I didn't know how to live. Yeah. Because uh, I would get in this vicious cycle where for two weeks I'd be happy because I'd be taking a lot of both of them, and then I'd run out of one or the other, and yeah. then I'd have to yeah, wait for the prescription having, yeah. to come in. Or never, ration and manage. and never occurred to me to buy them because my brother was a drug dealer, and I wasn't going to be like him. Yeah. You know, but uh, 
Yeah, I had the same thing. I wouldn't go out. I was too big a sissy to go out and buy my pills. You know, I'd bought pot and I'd bought other stuff from people. But at this point in my life, I like had a little bit of a, I guess I thought a little highly of myself. And, and I wasn't going to lower myself to, to going out on the market, out on the black market and buying street drugs. But I, instead, I chose to start breaking in houses. <laughs> so, like, man, what, that's that insanity thing of, of, of the choices we make. One time, I remember my brother come in, and I was probably about, I don't know, 18, 19, 20, something like that. And I was always scared of him because he was bigger than me. And uh, one time when I was 12, I threw uh, dirt at him. He chased me all the way home from uh, the school we were at. We were playing basketball, and he chased me all the way home. And I, I got to the bathroom, and I was about to lock the door when he caught up, and he took me by the throat and pinned me up against the wall and said, don't ever do that again. So from then on, I was scared of him. He was my idol. for, But it came in high one time, probably a little bit after that, a couple years after that, and um, he looked at me. He said, I like to kill myself just to see, just to see what it would do to you and I, I remember thinking that you're a fucking asshole and uh, so i didn't like him we didn't get along very much except for when i wanted pot <laughs> because i'd go with him because he'd give me pot and uh, i still liked his parties i just didn't like him and he came in one night high on probably cocaine and uh i was in my room and i heard a crash i heard him and my mom arguing which was normal um but I heard a crash and I was very protective of her, so I went out. I didn't ask questions. I know now that all he did was took a, a dinner tray and smacked it against the, off the table and it hit the microwave. But I didn't ask questions. I just went in and started punching him. Mm. And um, I, I did that a couple times. Um, there was a, until I was about 18 or 19, I lived in fear. But once I realized what this big old body could do, I, I didn't have... I didn't have a lot of fear. I, mean, I didn't show a lot of fear. I just hit you. Yeah. And that's the way I was taught. Remember that when I was standing in front of that doorway watching those parents? That's what you do when you when you don't get along. You hit each other. And that's what I did. So he died from um, hepatitis, a rare form of it. Um, Your brother? Yes, from from drugs, I'm sure. Uh, never stopped. He smoked pot till he died. But I remember about when he was, was that? In, huh? About when was that? Um, it was before I got sober. It was uh, 2006. I can remember that only because my mom died in 2000. My dad died in 2002. But that really didn't bother me, honestly, that much. I, I wasn't close to my dad at all. Um, but through this program, I was able to get close to my dad. Mm. Through dreams and meditations, I was able to make amends and make things right yeah, with my dad. Right. And I, I'm not sure what other people believe, but in my dreams, he was trying to make things right. I, I, I had vivid dreams of him and I, and I learned a lot from those. And then my, uh, the brother that I actually liked, he died from a massive heat stroke in 2004 and then in 2006 my brother was dying of hepatitis and, and he was yellow it was horrible to see but um, my sister stayed up there because they told us it could be any time I didn't I went home I got high and uh, I got up was taking the shower and when I got out of the shower I got the call that he died and I wasn't there for him because I chose drugs over yeah, being there for him right um, 
which, you know, served him right. Man, he shouldn't have treated me. That's the yeah, way I think, you know. So, uh, but back to that Christmas, right before Christmas, I took all those pills and uh, I didn't die. Now, I was at the best high in my life, man. It was two days. I was high for two days, stumbling around. And my wife called my sisters and told them. And, uh, I, you know, I just told them I, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to take that many. You know, I mistakenly took 45 Xanax. That was, I didn't mean to. They believed me. Or at least I thought I convinced them. They knew. So I detoxed off those pills, which I should have. I could have died. I, you, it's That's something really horrible to come off of. But yes. it was like a two-week-long nightmare. I don't even remember sleeping, just passing out. Couldn't hardly eat. You know, my prescription finally came back in for my uh, pain medication, my opiates. But I couldn't even take those. I couldn't keep anything down. So after two weeks, that other prescription came back in. And, you know, the voice inside my head said, okay, you made it two weeks. So you can take them like the bottle prescribes and you'll yeah. be okay. Yeah, you'll be all right. And so I got right back into that same thing. And, and it happened again in April. Um, April 22nd, <clears throat> I, uh, I woke my wife up in early in the morning around 12 a.m. or so. She had to work the next day. I told her that I think I'm having a heart attack. And by then, she really didn't care. She said, well, take yourself to the hospital. So I did, and they gave me enough Xanax to uh, get me through like four hours. And I remember leaving that place saying, I'm screwed. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is going to wear off. And it did, and she was at work, and my wife was, and I called her, and she said, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Call your sister. And she was just like that. She was very cold. Uh, uh, yeah, she we, had every right to be. Yeah, we wear them out. Yeah. And so I called my sister, and she said something. That never occurred to me before. And she said, call your doctor and be honest. It never occurred to me that I was lying to my doctor this whole time. So I called him and I was honest. <laughs> he said, I can't give you any more pills. And I said, well, you don't understand me. I don't want any more pills. I want some help. And because um, I had said that prayer before I, you know, before I called my sister, help me. Um, and I didn't cuss it. But it still hurt me, even though I cussed it years and years and years before. Right. And uh, my little dog, who I still have, you know, I, I never really wanted anything to do with that dog. That was their dog. But in that moment of suffering, he stood there with me. And, and it, his comfort, you know, just pet rubbing him kept me from doing something crazy. Yeah. And my sister, she came and got me and my doctor got me into the Brook Hospital and I went there, and uh, when they told me that they wasn't going to give anything for my back, because I have a back injury, I have degenerative disc disease in my back, and uh, they, they, I asked them what could I have from my back, and they said ibuprofen. I'm like, I'm out of here. That's not going to work. But my sister kind of made me stay, and like a dumbass, I had given her, given her what I had left of my pills, and I asked her for them back, and she wouldn't give them to me. So reluctantly, I went into this room, with these two guys, and they had, I had to take off all my clothes so that they could check my body for marks. And I didn't, I didn't know what they were doing. But I guess they were checking me for needle marks or something, and identifying things, you know. So uh, when I when that door shut and I'm sitting there with two guys, and nothing but my underwear, all those memories come flooding back yeah. from that little six year old boy. Man, I left that room shaking. I was shaking from head to toe, and this little bitty guy. 
I guess he was about five foot seven, older guy. He, he had to reach up to put his arm over me. He said, it's going to be okay, big guy. And that was the first time a man ever comforted me in my life. Hmm. And uh, he was right. It was okay. Um, it was tough. But I went to my first AA meeting that Saturday night, and uh, I introduced myself as Darren. I have a problem with prescription drugs. Uh, I wasn't a drug addict, and I wasn't an alcoholic. The only problem I had with prescription drugs is my doctor just wouldn't give me enough of it. Yeah, yeah, I got a lack of a scarcity problem. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I never looked back from that day. Now, I, I never had a relapse where I drank or drug, but emotionally I didn't do a whole lot. You know, I, I would go to meetings. I had a sponsor who was my nephew, and he had a long time in sobriety. But uh, he did for me what I needed. He gave me just enough rope to hang myself. And I almost did because three months of not doing much in the program, going to some meetings, calling him. I mean, he was lucky if I called him once a week. I mean, that was uh, that's about what I did. And I was going to these outpatient classes, but then they stopped. And so I didn't go into it. Maybe I'm two AA meetings a week, maybe. So I wasn't doing much. And then I was going to bars on the weekend to sing karaoke. And I didn't drink, but I was surrounded by people who were drinking and looked like they had a good time and I was miserable. And uh, I kept doing it to myself. You know, I would tell myself, you don't need to go there. And then I would talk myself or the disease would talk me because it knew, you know, if you're hanging around snakes too much, you're going to get bit. It knew. I, and it, it knew more than I did. Yeah. But I never gave in to that because I was scared. I was really scared of drugs. And um, my counselor had convinced me that if I drank alcohol, that I would go back to the drugs. And I believed him. Uh, I knew more than he did, though, about spirituality. So when I graduated his program, I thought I was all good. So at about 90 days in, dry, really, I uh, lost my temper with my uh, son. And I remember him saying something, and I jumped up. And he said, what are you going to do, hit me? And all I heard was hit me. And I went at him, and this may sound a little weird, but it was like my consciousness lifted out of my body, and I was watching the whole thing from the ceiling, and I started punching this kid. And it wasn't until my wife came in and yelled at the top of her lungs that I snapped back. And in the big book, they use the words like remorse and horror. They're really not good enough, but I don't know any other words yeah, to right. describe how I felt. Um, and as they were leaving... I remember asking my wife, because I knew she had Xanax. I remember asking her, you're taking your pills with you, right? Because I knew if she left them, I would take them. And she says, who cares, and left. And uh, so I called my sister, and I went to stay with her and her son, his wife, and their two little kids, two and three years old. And because uh, I knew if I stayed, I would figure out a way to go get something to drink. I didn't know how to get drugs, but I knew I could get alcohol, even if I had to steal it. So I went over there. And I called my sponsor. This was on a Sunday, and he was not home. So uh, that whole day, was I was just miserable. And finally, I got a hold of him, and he said, well, why don't you pray? And I remember thinking, you know, that's probably not going to do you any good. That's some lame advice. You're going to have to give me something better than that. <laughs> but I tried it. And I remember hearing in the rooms People say that they prayed on their knees. Well, before this moment, I was too good for that. Why do I need to get on my knees? Um, and today I really don't. But 
I needed to then. So yeah. I got on my knees and closed my that. eyes. I didn't know how to pray. Um, so I was trying to figure that out when all the hair on my right arm stood up. Something brushed against my arm. I looked down, this little two-year-old godson of mine. Why anybody would let that guy, who I was then, be a godson to or godfather to any, any kids was beyond me. But they loved me. I don't know why, but they did. I don't know why now. They could see past You're right. the, the, the monster. Um, they could see the man. Well, this little boy sure could. And he was down on his knees, and he smiled up at me. He had his hands folded. He was copying me. And I, I remember smiling down at him, and uh, the whole way I felt changed. And I said, you want to pray with me, buddy? And he nodded his head, and I said that now I'll lay me down to sleep prayer. And uh, I felt better. I mean, I felt a lot better. Now, it, it went away real quick, you know, as soon as my thinking started again because I was trying to control the situation, figure out how I could get back in, you know. But uh, it humbled me quite a bit, this experience. And uh, it was what it needed. That was my bottom. And uh, I've never went any further than that. Um, never hit him again. Through this program, not only have I mended my relationship with him, my relationship with him is probably healthier than him and his mother's relationship. Um, I remember... Uh, about a year, year and a half after that. I'd been doing really good. I'd made amends to him and several people in my family. I was doing good. And he come up. He said, I need to talk to you. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, what I do now? Yeah. I'm going to have to make amends for something again. He said, me and my girlfriend been been talking. And when uh, we have a kid, we want to call grandpa. We want to call you grandpa. And, dude, the feeling I got from that was better than any drug I yeah, ever man. have. And All then, right. actually, they did have uh, two kids right and uh and that one is my probably the closest friend on the planet um he's probably one of the best spiritual teachers other than my dog that i've had um but that's it that's it for me and um i would like you to kind of guide me and ask yeah. me some questions yeah, things because yeah. uh i've i've had some great spiritual teachers uh some of my best teachers have been assholes because the inventory process taught me to look at their defects. Well, I've always looked at their defects. I didn't need the inventory to judge people. But what I needed was to learn that they're just a mirror. They're showing me things about me that I don't like about myself. Right. Yeah. And instead of retaliating, I can become the student. So now I'm not a victim. I'm learning. And... That's great advice. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. If something's bothering me about you, then I need to turn around and look inside and see what it is about me that's got me bothered by that. Yes, and Christopher is the one that taught me to say, "Okay, Darren, you don't like the fact that this person is judging you. Who do you judge?" And most of my amends today are made that way. Somebody will, and it's almost always with my wife. Um, like I had a guy, and I'm not going to say his name because you both know him and he might listen to this, but there was a couple of them. And they were always know-it-alls, basically. They would always be telling me stuff, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. And uh, it would always irritate me, but I would use that inventory process um, to look at what the defect was. Um, 
And, you know, I was a know-it-all to my wife and my son all the time. I was always telling them, okay, you here's what you need to do. You need to drop Catholicism and come practice what we practice over here because this is way better for you. And, and, and I'm trying to run her life. And she's looking at me like, yeah, you took a whole bottle of pills yeah. only six months ago. And you're going to tell me you what to do. All of a sudden you're on the mountaintop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you are so we do the sponsor thing, you know, and and you are my grand sponsor. You are my sponsor, sponsor, and you two had a, a sponsor one another uh, early on. And I was actually speaking about this the other night, or and recently, you know, that some of the when I was real early, uh, one of the things like I frankly at times felt my sponsor was very was not quite as compassionate as what I was needing from somebody, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and another thing was is I, I was convinced at some level that it, although I was calling him every day and he was helping me greatly, so I don't want to you know that don't get the wrong idea there. But uh, I would get these little pieces of time with him, you know, that like on the phone. And I noticed too that I would look down at my phone after I got off the phone with him, and it'd be it'd be like even numbers all the time. It'd be like somehow or another be I'll land right on ten minutes and zero seconds. Seconds. And I was like, this son of a bitch has got me on a timer, you know. <laughs> I get 10 minutes and man, the hammer falls and that's it. And so that disease is telling me, I know that today is like trying to get me to, is trying to find fault in the system so that I would bail, right? But early on, what I started doing, and I don't remember if you probably remember, is I would call you. Or out of the blue, you would call me, and I remember sitting, I could have a vision of sitting in a particular chair at work outside in like a little lobby area that's outside. And it's a nice, really cushy kitchen, cushy, cushy chair, and uh, and sit there and talk to you. And this was been four years ago or so. You know, this is quite a while now uh, in, in terms of my recovery, uh, and sit and talk. And so, like we would talk, and I would look down at my at my at my phone because what for whatever reason I I got this numbers thing and some other things. I think it goes along with this being able to remember names and this just some OCD kind of thing. I think it's kind of common with a lot of us. And I looked down, you know, and I had talked to you for like an hour and 15 minutes, you know, wow. and, uh, and I was like, wow. And one of the things I could always remember, you know, I would complain about people. And, 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 and so the same thing, like this little, these, these people teaching me, right? That's the deal here. That's what we're doing. We're teaching one another. We're helping one another. We lift one another. I'm starting to learn that concept today, you know, on how to, how to do this. But And I pulled things. And I remembered saying, you know, I'd be complaining about somebody. And just in the very softest voice, you know, it would come around. You'd let me do my bitching and complaining or, you know, you know hauling somebody up on the up on the gavel or up on the gallows <laughs> as I'm getting ready to hang them for their indiscretions. Well, Dan, have you ever done a thing like that? <laughs> and it's that, that mirror thing shining back around you know and you never could deny it right because as soon as that would come man that you would it would it would flood over you that yeah man i had done a thing like that uh so i can i have those memories early on of having like the time i wasn't getting with my sponsor that felt like i wasn't getting with my sponsor i got from you you know so i'm forever grateful of those those conversations and these for whatever reason in my head i always remember them having it at work uh, like my sponsor would come told me that deal like call me between one of the things with those ground rules he said call me between one and three and I would call him at 2 p.m. every day that's between <laughs> yeah. one and three right uh, but like I said I would always feel like I, I I would get off the phone and I still had you know more to get rid of and you you allowed me that opportunity back then um, I know you got some other stories that I can pick on but I'll uh, not pick on but 
I know particular stories about like the the stories, the lessons that you've learned from your uh, grandson. Uh, you know, I know I can I can. Well, let's coin. go back to the sponsor for a minute. Um, yeah, anyway, we, we have no rules, so I just will circle around and generate content. He was my sponsor, and, you know, for his anonymity, I, I won't say too much, but, you know, one day I was uh, talking to him at, at one of his aftercare classes, and I said, well, why don't you just use me? Um, now, to get to that point, that he could actually use me. Um, I need to tell you the story that happened with my wife. Perfect. She would always say, you don't listen to me. You listen to your sponsees, but oh yeah, I'll listen to you, I'll listen. So I will, so give me a chance. So I listened for like two minutes and then I'd be telling her what to do. And she'd get frustrated. And so finally one day she calls me, she said, I just need, she's at work and she says, I just need you to listen. I'm like, okay, God, here's my chance. I don't say nothing. She talks and talks for, I don't know, three, four minutes probably. Might have been longer. And I was able to not say anything. And she said, this is the best conversation we've ever had. <laughs> I didn't say a word. And then I got into this uh, Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. And he would always say, you know, compassionate listening and gentle speech. And that's what I try to practice with people because I've learned through experience with sponsees, they won't listen to anything I tell them until they get out what they need to get out. And then I got them. Even if they're drunk, I will talk to people when they're drunk and I'll let them ramble and drunks can ramble. And so an hour I'll listen to people for. Um, it taught me patience as well. But I, I know I look at it as they're sick and they're crying and I'm not that great with kids, but I am pretty good with crying alcoholics and adults, and I can just listen because I know they need to get it out. So when I started sponsoring a guy with over 30 years at the time, and I just had maybe five, four or five, something like that, um, it was a huge ego boost. Yeah. And I would tell people I sponsored this guy. And then it occurred to me that, this has got nothing to do with my ego. How can I teach a guy that teaches, that wrote a book? He wrote, a, literally wrote a book on the steps. How am I going to teach him anything about AA? But what he taught me was, he still has that crazy thinking. Even at 30, almost 35 years now, he's still. But he he's so humble that he can call me and, and just vent. And all I do is listen. And sometimes... Um, I'll, I'll find something in that and I'm able actually to, to guide him in a certain way. Um, but it's only because he gets out what's blocking him from the truth. He knows how to do this stuff. And so do I, but we, we, we still get angry. We're human and we, we have, we use each other to get out of each other's way. Most of the time it's the only voicemails because he's hard to get a hold of when he's writing that book, man. Yeah. So I'll just yep. call him and, and vent to his voicemail, and he'll do that with me. Right. Because we know on the other end, the other guy is going to be laughing their ass off. Yeah. Because they they know at the end, we know at the end of it, we're going to feel better. Yeah. Because they know, we know that the other guy is going to eventually hear that and going to have compassion for that suffering human being. Right. So uh, stories about my grandson. Yeah. Well, so that fired off some thoughts on me okay. too, because the same kind of thing um, of the uh, 
the day that changed, like I can remember when, when, you know, when you're doing the sponsee sponsor thing and, and it's all about me, right. As a sponsee, you know, and then at the time that it flipped a switch, you know, and he was starting to be able to like vent on me. And it, you know, there was that instant of a minute of, uh, hold on a minute. This is about me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I come around, you know, to actually feeling and and, and I'll say higher power gives me this, right. I, it, it, it like taps me on the shoulder in a way. And I'm kind of like, I, the bell goes off and I'm like, Hey, no, this is like a cool shift to where now yeah. I get to play this other role and we're doing this together rather than on this hierarchy that one of us is above the other or some kind of thing. Cause that's kind of the way we go into this with that false feeling as a sponsor. I don't feel that way. Right. I don't right. feel that this guy's below me. That's not what I'm doing, but I know there's that, there's still that. I felt really small when I came in. I mean, like to people, I felt young and I felt small. Like me and you turn out to be about the same age, right? Well, I could swore like in like wisdom years, I guess maybe is what I'm looking at in a way that I feel. I look at you like like I'm 12 and I'm <laughs> three feet shorter than you and I'm 20 years younger, you know, or whatever, you know. And then it comes around to where you begin to get your own spirit back, you know. And, right. and then I realize, no, we're not yeah. uh, on these different uh, like when they're giving out the Olympic medals that you get on the different <laughs> the different yeah. levels. Uh, so you were talking about the voicemail. One day I got a text that said, I'm getting ready to call you. Don't pick up. Okay. From my sponsor. And a second later, my phone starts ringing. I grab it and I start to, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to answer it. Right. I'm going to hit the button just by habit, you know, and I remember, no, don't. So then I don't. And I sit there and, and it was like a long time before yeah, the little and told me I had a voicemail. And man, I could not wait to get to that voicemail, man. And I got it, and I got up out of my seat, and I went someplace where I could listen to it in safety, you know, and, and take it in and hear what was going to be said, what what wisdom or whatever was going to be imparted on this on this voicemail, and it wouldn't play. <laughs> it wouldn't play. It wouldn't play. It wouldn't play. And it still has never played. I never got to hear that voicemail. But the lesson I got was is later on in the day when I actually did talk to him it didn't matter that it didn't play. He was able to actually get that through. He didn't know when he was expelling the energy that nobody was going to hear it on the other side. Uh, I wasn't sitting there as a, like what I may do is want to like interject and stop him, you know, and if I, what I would want to do, maybe if you called, I'd want to dialogue with you and stop your puking of that energy. And he got free of it, you know, so actually that was a tool I picked up later on or I use today, you know, that we do sometimes I'll say, you know, you can you lay that stuff on my voicemail is ever a bit as valuable as actually getting me sometimes even more so because I'm not sitting over here trying to stop you you know because I, I I have a little thing in me still that will want to like whoa yeah you know I want to derail all that for a minute I know better now that to let a guy like and, and uh, that's where I'm coming back around to is that uh, that's another thing I've learned from you Darren was the ability to listen of learning that story from you just just shut my damn mouth and let these people talk because that's all they really need sometimes. And that's all I need sometimes too. It's just to go dump all that negative energy. That's really the where I've come up with this thing where I say, you know, I get to dump my negative energy to the universe. I get to diffuse it, dump it to the universe through safe people, which is you guys, right? I get to do that. And then when I get done, and the coolest thing is when I'm doing that and I have somebody on the line, and I hear them and I can think I can, I can hear some people's specific voices over the years ago. 
on the telephone, you know, and they're like done, you know, mm -hmm. that's like the, that's the sign, you know, and the energy completely shifts and we can dialogue and they're free of that, whatever it was, you know, yep. it's, it's been expelled and now we can actually talk about it and we can do something with it. If I would try to jump in early, it'd be like pushing a ball uphill, right? It's, it just keeps on rolling back down on me if I try to go early with that. So those, uh, I can, and you said tick not hot, so I'll kick one more little thing. This morning there was a thing about, it was a memory on my Facebook, and I like that when it pops back around. And it was one I hit, I shared a quote by him. And I always get that, it's Tick Not Han, I think. I always get the last two, I want to say Han, Not, or it doesn't matter, everybody knows who I'm talking about, I think, or anybody that does, about hugging meditation. Because that's oh. the second thing, if I like, I've learned a lot from you, but these two things hang, you know, that I know that we're like, is the ability to listen, and also the ability to hug a guy. Because, man, I remember coming in, man, and I didn't want to hug nobody, you know, and, like, you guys would squeeze me, you know, and it'd be really uncomfortable for a minute, you know. But then I started learning, you know, relaxing and understanding where that love was in that hug and to start be able to do that. And, and, and you know, now when I hug people, it's kind of funny because, like, like yoga, we go around and generate energy at the beginning of class in our yoga teacher training. Now, we don't do this in just normal yoga. This is in our trainees the teacher trainings uh and go around and hug and like i'll hug somebody and they'll go wow <laughs> you know <laughs> when you get a wow off a hug you know you delivered some energy to them so those yeah. two things hit me really quickly is that uh the ability to listen and, and how to actually hug somebody and mean it the uh the thing i had to learn it and i don't know where i learned it but at some point i realized they're not broken they don't need to be fixed. They're sick. And even says that in the big book. They're right. sick. People yeah. are sick. So what do you do with a sick person? You heal them. And, and so I listen to heal. I don't listen to fix. So I'm not listening to respond. I'm listening to let them get it out. And it's in that listening that the hearts will connect. Yeah. And the same thing happens with a hug. The hearts connect. I've, I've had guys um, who will come up and one hand hug me. And I'll let them do that. But then I'll say, okay, now let's try it my way. And I'll open up my hands and they hug me. And I've, I've learned to not let, I let them let go. And I'll let go when they do. But I'll hold you as long as you want me to hold you. Because it's, it's, a, it's an energy. That, and it feels good to me too. So, I mean, it's, um, that's a, pretty much you just described me. I listen and I can hug. Those are my talents. Yeah, and now, I thank you for delivering both of those to me. Now, uh, the best thing about this is uh, that Shane sends me these texts every morning. And today's reading, I don't always read them all, but today I, I did it. And it was cool. It was about uh, uh, the fear, how we uh, outgrow fear. And uh, the freedom in that is what has broadened my life and it's allowed me to do things. Like for a kid that thought he was never good enough, at 19, I I got this, I had a guitar that my mom had gotten me and I uh, learned to play that and kind of, and uh, took me a long time to teach myself, but I did. And I wanted to write songs. I just knew it. So I got this book from the library and I hand copied this book because we didn't have no copier back then. So I wrote, I got handwriting. I still got that book on songwriting and I would write these songs and I'd get halfway through and say these are no no good like that that training would block me so I'd throw yeah. them away the only songs I could finish would be the ones I used cuss words in and that were funny I could always write funny songs like that and uh, they were great at parties 
but once I stopped drinking, you know, they went, they really weren't that good <laughs> if you're not drunk. Yeah. So, uh, but somewhere, um, I don't know, a couple of years after Chris started sponsoring me and I become free of those blocks, uh, I, I did a meditation one time that uh, I had this calling and the, the voice said, you need to write. And so, you know, I was lucky. I had a sponsor that was an author, right? So, I mean, I, I got the inroad. So he starts telling me how he writes. And I remember, because he's, he's like, every day I will sit down for such and such amount of time and I'll write no matter if it's, you know, anything. I'll write every day. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like work. Yeah. I don't like work. But I tried it because I had this great idea for a book. I still have a great idea for a book. I just need somebody who knows how to write because I don't have the patience to do it. But so anybody out there that can write, I got a great story for you. But I would get frustrated by trying to be disciplined like this. And I would go grab my guitar because that's how I calmed down. And I then one day I was playing and I'm like, well, that sounds pretty good. Hey, wait a minute. Writing songs is writing, isn't it? So I just started writing songs out of the blue, man. Um, because I didn't think, have anything holding me back anymore. And some of those songs weren't that great, but I was teaching myself how to write. And um, after about six months, they started to be pretty good. And some of the songs that, uh, that most of the songs I have four or five years old, but uh, right about that six month period, I started to being able to tune into something. Uh, I would always write either after a meditation or Christopher and I share a spiritual teacher uh, who's an angel mystic named Kathy Mae Miller. So that's the second time you guys have heard that name drop if, yeah. if you've listened to Dan's that's... podcast. And um, if you're not with us at the TSSR meetings on Thursday night, check her out. Um, she's an amazing teacher. And she's one of those people that I'm 12 and she's she's 150. Yeah, right. But, but she's so down to earth and... Um, what she taught me was uh, to believe in myself. And so I would, I would be nervous, um, but there was another guy in that class that he would get up and, and he, he started coming back to the class after I'd been there for like six months. And, he's, and I was writing by then, but I wouldn't sing for anybody. So he, uh, he started playing. I'm like, he sounds good. I can sing better than he can. <laughs> you know, the judgment thing. But he had the confidence to get up there and do it. So yeah. I'm like, well, maybe I should try. And I asked her, and she let me. And so uh, and then uh, I have a friend, uh, Brian, who uh, is theater trained, and he could sing really well. And so he, he gave me some ideas. And, and he was very honest with me about my voice. I didn't like it at first. But I, I realized that the voice, I learned this from a kid I used to, spon uh, I used to sponsor who's a pretty good singer. And he, he said the voice is just like any other instrument you have to use it in practice. And so I, I started doing vocal exercises and I can, I, I still necessarily don't like my voice, but I can hit the notes that I try to hit now. And uh, some people really like my voice. I just don't happen to be one of them. Yeah, I like uh, it. But uh, I've learned to like it. Uh, but I had to get past all that training, you know? And then uh, the same thing happened with art. You know, when, uh, once I had recorded some songs and I played in front of a large audience or I was getting ready to play in front of a very large audience, which for, for this little six-year-old scared kid, 
singing in front of the 300 people should have scared the crap out of me. That I couldn't have enough of it. I tried to get out there on that stage as many times as I could that night. I loved it. And I was up there dancing and acting silly and just had a great time. And my and dad I, just come oh, okay. out up on the deck. It catches my <laughs> eyes. And I probably the sun, I think, shined in here, didn't it? Went off, went off of his door. But uh, while I was going through these uh, rehearsals, I didn't really want to play the guitar. I was practicing enough. And so for downtime, I would start, I learned to paint. And uh, one day I uh, was running low on some paint, so I put a little water in it. And when I put it on the canvas, it ran all over the place. And I'm like, at first I, it was like a screw up or as Bob Ross would say, the happy accident. And uh, it looked pretty cool. And so I started using runny paint and painting and, and uh, I didn't think too much of those either, but people seemed to really like them and they actually gave me money for them, which was a weird idea to me, but you know, it's cool. Yeah. So the, what Christopher's taught me is there's 12 steps, but they can keep going. You know, you can keep growing. And there's, um, I heard a guy talk last night how at one point the drugs and alcohol hit a bottom and they didn't work anymore. And I've not found that true with spiritual growth. Right. I, yeah. I keep growing and growing and growing. This and is growing the limitless load yes. that keeps on giving. What, I would, what, what that book will do for people, though, is give you a balance. Because when I first hit that spiritual, it's like uh, how they drill for wells, you know. When I when I hit that mother load or whatever, uh, I was I was just like Shane, man. The, when I first met Shane, I'm like, he looks like I used to look, man. He was so you could tell that kid had it. He's not really a kid, but to me, he is. I could tell he had it. But I, I remember in my mind saying, you know, Christopher could really balance him. That's what he did for me. He balanced my energy, and uh, so. Uh, he had actually asked Christopher to sponsor him, and, right. and, and I was Christopher's sponsor. He, I don't yeah. know if you knew that, but I was in Christopher's ears. Why don't you sponsor this kid? So finally, uh, I don't even know if Shane knows that I, I was instigating this, man. I was really in Christopher's ear all the time. And when he had the opportunity, he started sponsoring him, and then Shane completely changed. And you did the same thing. Um, so what he teaches in that book is how to – be a spiritual being having a human experience. Really, it's that's uh, you hear, you'll hear that a lot if you're in spiritual circles, and and that's, but the human experience is important, right? Because not everybody knows what we know, so we have to be able to stay at that level and then also be able to elevate, and uh, that I give him 100% credit for that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's been a huge. Huge teaching thing. That uh, that quote that I was talking about, it says, uh, when we hug, our hearts connect, and we know that we are not separate beings. Hugging with mindfulness and concentration can bring reconciliation, healing, understanding, and much happiness. Tick, not Han, hugging meditation. Yep. That popped up today. And at any time I, and I'll, I can almost promise you, that was uh, March 22nd, 2015. That's three, I was three months over uh, when I, when I, that's, that's when that's come from. And I almost promise you, I know where that come from. Ultimately, <laughs> it didn't. I bumped into it. It's that synchronicity stuff where I bumped into it from Ticknon Hot. But, uh, but it was you hugging that that instigated that. When I read it this morning, I knew that. And it's interesting that you know here you were coming today. Uh, I have a friend. We were um, at uh, 
one of Kathy May's spiritual classes, and sometimes she'll put us in groups and help us redefine things and and to um, like because like the Bible is interpreted. Well, it's really really old, and so some things get lost in translation. So she likes us to like redefine it in today's language, and so the word love comes up, and my friend she's she's going on and on about uh, her definition of love. And I'm like, won't you just stand up? And I hugged her and I said, that's love. <laughs> it's a feeling. It's not a word. Um, and, you know, I heard Christopher say the other, other night, words are important. They are. But um, there's a spiritual teacher, Eckhart Tolle, and he said words are signposts. They point somewhere, but in reality, emotions are meant to be felt. We're not taught that. We're taught to think. And so we try to think emotions. And um, there are some emotions that are so horrible that our brain can't, can't process them. And, and that's why people stick guns in their mouths. Yeah. Uh, I had a friend who is, in, in, one of his stories is in the book of Christopher's. And uh, he, uh, he was in 9-11. And uh, he made it out. A Tower 2, I think. And... Um, he survived, but he never could get over that. Right. Yeah, never could reconcile. Seeing it. the people dying, and yep. uh, he was uh, he was the one um, he was he was told to go to this men's meeting on Tuesday night um, to get a sponsor. He didn't want to go by himself, so I told him I'd meet him there. So I met him there, and he didn't show up. And and I was scared of men still at this time. I hadn't. This was early, early first six months in sobriety, I think, six, seven months. And um, so I stayed in the back by the door, so if somebody got too close, I could just take off, you know. Um, it's funny when I think about it, but it, it was wired in my brain to be scared of men. So Yeah, me too. I called him when I got home, and I was like, why didn't you come? And he gave me some excuse, and I'm like, okay, we'll meet next week. So went again. This time, one of the guys there, he didn't show up, but one of the guys introduced himself to me before the meeting, and I felt welcome. And I would listen to, I started to listen to these guys, and they really knew what they were talking about when it comes to the 12 steps in the big book. So I started, that became my home group. I, I kept going. I went on spiritual retreats, and I started to grow in that meeting. Um, so much so that uh, they stopped th saying things that, interested me you know that was my place to grow spiritually and then at other meetings where i could give back but now i'm not getting nothing from this and events happen so that christopher and i and another friend brian we started this other meeting um called the spiritual underground and it's been mentioned a number of time on these podcasts yeah. too and that w w our main what's well, the name of this podcast spiritual underground podcast our That's main purpose from. in that is to let people say what they need to say without fear of crosstalk or judgment. Yep. And, that, and that's still the core principle of that. And the TSSR meetings are the same way. And, you know, that's that's Christopher because I wanted to do way a, a lot of things differently, but he kept saying this is the purpose that we need. And uh, that guy I was telling you about um, probably about, five months after that, put a gun in his mouth because he just couldn't live with the guilt. Uh, but I lived. And 
through me, his story lives. Right. And, and lots of others. I've sponsored two guys that have died, uh, uh, both one overdose for sure, the other one I'm pretty sure drank. Uh, and I remember being in aftercare when he died and Christopher came up to me. He wasn't sponsoring me yet, but he said, uh, you know that wasn't your fault, right? And uh, I did kind of, but him saying that really you know, helped me with it. Yeah. And uh, a Joe and Charlie tapes, um, the, Joe says sometimes uh, about sponsoring people, he was scared to sponsor and his sponsor told him, they're gonna die anyway, so you might as well try. And so that's what I do. Yeah, yeah, you sponsor a lot of people and help a lot of people, no doubt about that. Your uh, energy is well known and, and talked about. Uh, you bring a lot to the table. I still have guys that say that I'm intimidating. I don't get it. I mean, I know it's probably their training because I'm the I least. I thought that in, way at first, you know. I'm the least intimidating person I know. I mean, yeah. to me anyway. I don't know what happens. Uh, well, you know, like you said, I had some things go on early on with me. And, and well, actually, it wasn't a man. It was a boy. But it was another same-sex thing go on when I was a little kid. And, and I know how much, you know, I would have liked to say for a long, long time that that stuff don't bother me anymore. That has no effect on me. But that's uh, one of the things I also say is that's like, as I get more clear in my future, as my path becomes more and more clear out in front of me, my past also becomes more clear to me. And I can see deeper into it and see stuff. So I now know just how much that one episode, you know, that episode was the thing that made a difference between my picture that I have from Christopher's exercise on turning the page from where the boy had the lights on and when he don't. That is the event, and I've gone back. I know that. That is what happened between this picture and that picture. And so, therefore, when I come in later on and the guy's hugging me real tight, you know, I'm yeah. going, hold the fuck on a minute. Uh, and, and I don't know that. I don't know that. That's subconscious, you know. That's not conscious. I couldn't have reasoned with that. And if you would brought that to my attention at the time somehow or another, if you had been able to actually say that and go, well, here's why, I'd have said, no, that's not it. <laughs> if you'd even known. But uh, so to come in and start getting to where you're seeing these people and to let these guys in that, I, you know, because I see now how guarded I've been with males all my life. All my life I've been guarded with males, period. And I'm too smooth and, and, and I'm scared of females. So where's that leave me, right? Nobody, <laughs> you know. Uh, if I said last night that, that thing about uh, feeling less than or better than, really those two things, yeah, that's what it is. But ultimately what that was, the, the, the thing behind all that was to be not part of. Right. You know, that was really it. The yeah. Less than or not like being scared of women and not being and being scared of men meant that I get to stay back here and not, yeah. be, not allow myself to come in and get vulnerable and learn people right. and make this thing that, that still that, that opposite of all this spiritual malady some people say that the one person i heard coin it was the opposite of addiction is connection well you know i think the big cure for this spiritual malady or not one of the big elements is connection that's realizing that we're all one and that we're all together that's how i begin to be able to heal and so when i did come in and i saw you and like i said you're big you know and i felt small you know so i'm intimidated at first when i saw you I remember uh, there's a couple other people. I, my very first sponsor when I came in, in 2011, you know, my current sobriety is 2015, so that's four years before I came to the Spiritual Underground and where, you know, for whatever reason, that's where it clicked. I know why, but I just kind of dodge and bob around that. It, the miracle happened for me at the Spiritual Underground was a guy who was probably someplace in the neighborhood of five foot four. You know, I'm six three, 
And I would tell you, I would swear that first meeting that I met this guy, he was taller than me. That's how small I felt. He's a full, almost a full foot shorter than me in height. <laughs> and if I had come home and talked to you about him, I'd have told you this guy was taller than me. <laughs> you know, that's that, that impression I have of myself, right? Yeah. That where I'm just so small that I'm so worthless. I'm just not worthy. I'm, I'm, uh, so when people say you intimidate them, uh, I mean, that's really the natural state to walk in the door, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, at, there was a meeting not too long ago. He hasn't been around a whole long time with us, a month or two. And uh, I remember seeing the guy for the first time, and uh, he shared, and he uh, was kind of struggling with the whole higher power deal, but he liked the fellowship part of it. So after the meeting, I went up to him, and I said, Think back to when you were a kid, four or five, who did you really love? And he said, my mom and my dad. I said, okay, hug me like you would hug your mom or your dad. And so mm -hmm. you give me a big hug. And I'm like, that's your higher power right there. Did you feel that? And he got it. And uh, I, I've learned that that's what intimidates people is, you know, with me and Christopher, we are who we are. And if you don't want what we got, our vibe is so strong that it pushes people that, that don't want that away. Yep. But it also acts like a tractor beam and it will pull the people who really want it in. Yeah, That's absolutely. why so many people come to that meeting and and some stick, some don't. But the ones that stick, I've seen just grow and grow so fast. Because, you know, I got it pretty fast. I mean, year and a half, two years, I was pretty solid. But I've seen guys like Shane and you get it a lot faster than me. And the ones that I listen to today are the guys that you, Dan, sponsor. You sponsor. Oh, you, and then those guys sponsor guys. And and then they ended up – I mean, I listen to those guys because, A, most of the older guys in the meeting, I've heard what you got to say, and a lot of them say the same stuff over and over and over yeah. and over. So what keeps fresh. me coming back is something new. And what people don't understand is – Nobody knows your story better than you do. Nobody really can tell your story better than you can. The very first time I spoke in front of a big group of people, I mean, it was a huge meeting. It was a speaker meeting, too. That's all it was. Um, when the speaker's done, the meeting's done, right? So I get up there. I'm scared to death. I'm saying every prayer that I can think of because um, I only had a little bit over a year and a half. But the guy that asked me, had a long time and he liked the way I shared the meeting. So I got up there and I just told the truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God <laughs> in 20 minutes, everything. And I'm like, uh, sorry guys, but I'm done. And the, the meeting was over in 20 minutes. You know, I had people lining up to tell me, I've never heard anybody be that honest. And, uh, cause I felt bad because they didn't yeah, get right. a full yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but what people appreciate is is your truth, yeah, and and absolutely. if you just tell the truth, uh, your own experience, strength, and hope, um, you can't miss what that uh, recipe uh, that is in the big book. And that and and I see people not use that formula. Uh, that are great speakers, and I'll be thinking if you just only would follow follow the outline, you could be speaking. Uh, anywhere in the United States. Um, and you're one of those guys that follows the outline and 
combine that with a great orator because I'm not the best of orators. I just tell the truth and people like the truth. People hear the truth. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I sit there and listen to somebody and there's you can tell the difference. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that it's a lie either. That's the other thing, you know. Right. It's just it's that heart truth. Yeah. Versus ego. Yeah. Which is predominant in newcomers is they talk from ego. I couldn't I couldn't put two words together. And now you can't shut me up yeah. because uh, my sponsor taught me the my first sponsor, my nephew, he taught me, he said, uh, won't you just ask God if he'll speak through you? And I did that. And the very first time I did that, I could talk and talk and talk and talk because it wasn't me talking. It was something, you know, past my ego. It was my heart talking. Yeah. And people related to that. That's why I was asked to speak that time because he, he heard my heart talking. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell the difference. Like the spirit is talking through somebody, you know, where it's not. I kind of go into his own thing, and sometimes I don't even know necessarily, you know, what I've said. You know, after the fact, I'm not sure exactly where, what came out today. When when you get a group of people that starts doing that, that can speak from the heart and listen from the heart, you generate a lot of power. And in our circle, we call that juice. And yeah. for the people that listen to this and don't understand that word, and, and they're trying to go to the grocery and, and look at what juice we're talking about, it's just spiritual energy is all it is. It's, it's that connection that, we, that forms in between listening and talking. And that's how we connect. And we create a lot of power. And that's the power that no drug or alcohol or chocolate brownie or porn or whatever you want to cover up your pain with nothing takes away pain like love and that's what we generate in those meetings and uh there's a guy uh there's a lot of guys in our meeting that really can bring it um one just gave the lead the other day alex i mean <laughs> a lot of young guys won't remember the commercials about ef hutton about when he talks people listen about finances that's him when he talks i listen yeah and Touched me big time yeah. the other night. I was getting those chills up and down my Kundalini chill kind yeah. of things up and down my spine whenever <laughs> yeah. uh, he was sharing and and talking. Yeah, and we do, and that's what attracts people. But like you said, you know, one of my favorite, and it's not really a favorite, but I'm tickled by it, is that when people come in, and uh, they that energy is too much for them. They're not, you know, that they're you're usually they're usually not a lot of middle ground, right? You're either attracted or you're. Uh, you're, you're sent out of there like the I like the room when they come out and they look out like they're getting ready to go take a leak you know and then poof you don't see them back in the meeting again they went to mm -hmm. you know they, like <laughs> halfway through the meeting and this right. is all I can take and I'm right. out of here yeah. uh, you know they, we'll see what happens with them but we are uh, something cool is happening there that's beyond words the, the words are not adequate to state the energy that, that wells up in these meetings like like last night and 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 the spiritual underground meetings where that spirit is speaking in that room and and people that want to latch on to that have every opportunity to do it there's also another little thing about people telling that we're clickish and stuff yeah. i think that's the same people that are not wanting you know when you say that because we'll let you in right we right. all got our arms wide open and we're not uh, an exclusive group by any means in my opinion i, I i'm relatively sure i can say that with confidence uh, 
but some people feel that and it's it's their own that's that that run you know it's kind of like a fight or flight kind of thing you know where it's like man i gotta get out of here uh and i didn't feel that way the first time i was sat in that spiritual underground meeting i was like just like i was i was pulled so hard like you said tractor beam yeah i knew that night where i was going to be next tuesday i knew where i was going to be I don't think we're clickish. I think we're firing on all cylinders. Yeah, me too. But and I've heard that said. Yeah, I don't, and I don't. I disagree with the word. I, I disagree with the, that assessment of us. If people only knew the reason we always have a burning desire before we start is for you to let that stuff out, so you can take the good stuff in, and people don't get it. They don't want to let you know. I was one of them. I'm not going to, even though I seriously am thinking about maybe going out and having a drink, I'm not going to tell you that because I don't want you to think I'm going to do that. Yep. I, I'm scared of what you think about me. And uh, It took a lot of pain for I got in there to make a, my very first burning desire and told to let you all know where I was at. You know, I kept on coming in there that, you know, I was Dan and he's fine, you know, and, and I did that and I wasn't, but I was still being drawn back and one day I popped. You know, and, and then that's where the that was actually the night the shift happened. That's the night that Christopher come up and said he was going to sponsor me. Yep. And uh, and the turn the, the the everything shifted. And I think I was sponsoring him at the time. You were. And for him to do that because he was pretty hardcore into that book. He was not he sponsoring had, anybody to my He think. had tried to sponsor a couple of newcomers before that, so he's and they they didn't do what he. If you don't do what he tells you to, he doesn't have a lot of patience for you to stay. And he and he's okay with that because his time at that time is very valuable. He was writing that book and he got frustrated. And so for him to come up to you, something had to move him that night. Yep. Yeah. That's what uh and you know, when I walked out of there knowing that because I was hoping that Christopher was gonna that's who I wanted to sponsor me and he never raised his hand. You know, and I kept watching. And like I said, I was looking to see who was next. You were on the list. Some other people were on the list of who, like, who who was going to be next. And uh, and I and I've told this story from a podium. And I said that I got there one day and I went to my court date. And I and and normally I would drink after my court date. That's how I would drown out that misery and that shame, guilt, all that stuff. You know, that I would go to the court and I was and I would get enough and I'd come whole up. I'd try to hit that sweet spot where I'd buy just enough where I wasn't going to have to pour any out. But it would get where I needed to be by then. By it was time to pass out at night, and uh, but it was a Tuesday. That court date was a Tuesday, and I didn't want to drink because I wanted to come to that meeting. And I and I, and I was scared to death. I, I just had it in my head that if I missed the night that I missed that meeting, he'd raise his hand, somebody else would grab him up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what made me heavy so miserable all day is because I wasn't able to drown that that day. I wasn't able to 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 suppress those feelings like I normally did. And when I got in there, I popped. You know, anybody's got a burn desire. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, I, I think that uh, the fact that you did pretty much everything he asked you to do um, and you became friends with him, I don't think the book would be as good without you being in his life. I, I know that it wouldn't be because uh, uh, before you, BD, before Dan. Oh, wow, man. The... Uh, he struggled, man. He struggled writing that book. He called me a lot, and he he did not struggle like he did when, once you caught on and you caught fire. Um, so I think you should actually have a page in the book dedicated to you. Uh, something else I was going to say, but I forgot it. I'm starting to run out yeah. of stuff. I always talk about the uh, that 11th step in that book is, is my chapter, someone I consider my chapter. 
uh, it's got a little paragraph in there that really touches me that that talks about me yeah and uh and and yeah that's so so i consider it does have a it does it just doesn't name me yeah um yeah i don't you know how all this stuff goes and how we ended up landing you know this uh this you know higher power puts people together i guess you know that's all i can chalk it up to and then we've landed together shane you, you know, we got this core group of i don't know 30 guys or so that are just like really solid strong lean on one another able to get vulnerable with one another uh you know obviously everybody's a varying a little bit of degrees but i mean for all in all it's a really really strong group of guys and how i landed with christopher i have no idea in this book and this tssr movement and these things that we're getting to do uh i really am i, I sit back at times and i'm like wow man this is like dreamland stuff and i hear some talk here and there about you know the whole thing about heaven and, and words like that, you know, and, and I really feel that's where I'm sitting at today. Yeah. That that's where I live today in this world that I get to have of doing this podcast, having this group of friends around me. Uh, the other things that the blessings I'm getting to witness, you know, watching sponsees do stuff and, and you know, and having like a, I guess like a, what now, like a great, great grand sponsee that is being sponsored by a you know, and, and seeing that lineage stuff happening. I've only been around four years, right? Right. And this is, you know, in a lot of rooms, I'm a newcomer still. And I hope I still feel like it always, right? There's that other thing. But to have these blessings come down and everybody getting, like you said earlier, it took you a couple of years or a year and a half or something for, you know, we're watching guys get like, uh, getting like a full dose of recovery. You know, Christopher said like the thimble full. We're not getting, the, we're not giving away the thimble full. You're getting the full dose. In six months' time, guys are sharing like they've got been around for a long time. It just it's there's there's some cool magic going on in our circle that uh, that just tickles me. I start to get the chills right now thinking about it. Uh, I was at the barber shop this morning, and and my my barber is a non-participating sober guy. He got sober in 12 steps in in, in AA, but he doesn't go anymore because all they do is talk about alcohol, you know. And I hear that around, you know, and I'm like, well, we don't, you know. <laughs> But he sees me and he knows and he sees me on Facebook and he sees what I'm going doing and when I'm sitting there talking to him and I like the times like today when I'm go to him and there's nobody. Friday mornings is usually busier than hell. I mean, it's a waiting list. I mean, you sit in there for a while and there's a lot of people and I end up landing there today where it's just him and I and we can speak freely. Not that I won't, but you know, when you got a group of mixed company in the room, you just don't know how much of this stuff you, it's that casting the pearls amongst swine thing. Right. Not, not to call them pigs, but they're just not gonna get it and there's no sense in really throwing it out there but to be able to sit with him today and, and tell him about you guys and 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 the, and the blessings that's happened as a result of 12-step recovery as, as this this optimized method this way of doing this work that just gets you well and you can like the there's I know I, I typed up a little thing this morning you know uh, you guys encouraged me to let me know my sponsor and this that there's no limits to this you've let me know that you know instead of in certain places of people like easy you know, don't get well too fast. Right. You know, you know we don't want you getting. Uh, you, you don't don't you know, you take your time through these steps. You know, and I heard somebody not too long ago say something about a four step that lasted a year. Like, Mine lasted a while. Mine was probably three months, and that was long enough for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, and I have no idea. I mean, I know that I was uh, from a time I, before I was six months, before I had a six month chip in my pocket. I was through steps with Christopher, and uh, and and like I, said, I always one of the things I had that ankle bracelet on, and Floyd County Community Corrections didn't know I was a free man, 
but I was a free man <laughs> at six months, uh, six right. months sober. The thing about anybody, and it's in the big book, all you need is a little bit of willingness. Now, you and I are very different because when Christopher started sponsoring you, you were really w willing. And I had a, I got a sponsoring who I call Mikey, and, and he was really willing. Um, actually, I'll, I'll tell his a little thing. He became willing pretty quickly. He, uh, his wife called me one night. I'd probably been sponsoring him. I don't even know if it had been a month. And she's like, you might need to call him. She didn't tell me anything. So I called him. I said, how you doing, Mikey? Guess what he said? Fine. Fine. <laughs> I'm fine. And I, I said, really? If you're so fine, why is your wife calling me? And so he tells me that he had said something that he shouldn't have said. And so I let him talk for a minute. And I said, you know where, uh, you know where Walmart is? He's like, yeah. I said, all right, I want you to go to Walmart. You do, do you know where the flowers are in Walmart? They sell flowers in those super Walmarts. He said, yep. I said, okay. Do you know where they sell candy, boxes of candy? He's like, yeah. I said, what about cards? He was catching on now. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, okay. I want you to go past all that shit, go to the hardware department, get some duct tape, put it over your fucking mouth, and go back home. <laughs> and he got it. And he started to do that listening stuff that I do. And... Um, the, he got his last token. Now he has been able, his daughter was not in his life at this time. And within a couple of years, um, he had made amends and he had his daughter and his granddaughter back in his life. And then when I gave him his token this last time, his daughter actually got up, came across the room and said, I got I want to hug Darren. And, uh, so that's what makes me feel good. Yeah. Um, is to, to see somebody make it, but I'm not that guy, you know, Christopher will call me, because I'm his sponsor, and he'll say, you know, he'll rant and stuff, and he'll get it up. He's like, How's your day? And then I'll and I'll say something, and he'll be like, Let me put my sponsor hat on for a minute. And I'm like, Well, why don't you put your yeah, sponsor hat on? Take that hat? thing I, off. You called me. I ain't got a problem. But uh, <laughs> he can read me, and I can read him. And so, um, although I don't hardly ever like what he has to say, yeah, me too. I, I eventually, after I, I call somebody and vent to them, I hear what he has to say. Yep. Um, so I'm one of those guys that has to learn the hard way. But you can. Uh, some of my biggest lessons, the the best things I've been taught, has been looking at the opposite of the hard way. Because everything has an opposite. So how much ever pain you're in right now, there's an opposite to that. Um, and the way I've found to do that is something called the law of attraction. Basically, is what you... Put out, you get back. You know, yep. a lot of people use that for money, and they, I don't really do it that. I do it for love because I just wanted to be happy. And so, one thing I was taught by Kathy May is praise. And you guys do that with your juice bombs on your little group thing. Um, I praise everybody. Anything I that attracts me, it could be a, a shirt, it could be a way somebody does their hair. I will stop and compliment them. Yeah. And most of the time, they'll smile. Sometimes they won't even look at you but i found in putting it out i get it back right and so uh in terms of love and people that love me I, i'm warren buffett dude i've got i've got a lot of people who love me and it's it's that's that is if you learn anything from what i say today that will change your life 
what you put out comes back. If you put out the good stuff, you're going to get the good stuff back. In AA, we just say do the next right thing um, because uh, alcoholics will overcomplicate anything. So just keep doing the next right thing. And your life changes, and you're like, oh, how did it happen? <laughs> because you're putting it out there. That is perfect, man. I'm almost ready to just say that to be the end of this podcast. I'm done talking. Because that was like the, uh, the icing on the cake. Cool. Spiritualunderground.org. You'll see show notes, see picture. Uh, we're going to record a little music here after this. Uh, Amazon, 12-Step Spiritual Recovery, Christopher Cohn. You can go get that book. Uh, there's a link to it on spiritualunderground.org to, to, to straight to the Amazon link. So uh, you ought to be able to find that stuff. If you can't, email me. I'll show you how to do it. Uh, thank you all for being in here today. I have stole my sponsors signing off. He says this to me and has from the time that I first talked to him. Uh, I thought it was dumb for a while. He says, I still think it's dumb. <laughs> Peace out.
got me thinking again It won't take much to do me in My time has come My time has come The shadow spreads and covers everything It clouds my days in endless ebony Though it may be only just a spark, there's always light within the dark. Please, Father, can you hear me calling? My faith is shaking and my hope is falling. Holy Mother, your child is of you can you shine a little light a little light within the please father can you hear me calling my faith is shaking and my hope is falling holy mother your child is begging of you can you shine a little light a little light within the dark think you should write or she said you're gonna write a song and then she stopped and I'm like okay a song what and she was hesitating to tell me and she said they say you're gonna write a song that's gonna keep somebody from committing suicide and so um, I went home and I picked up the I told my wife and I picked up the guitar and I'm like that was a message so I sat down and I wrote that song in about 15 minutes and it just flew out like that 